inner peace is the ultimate source of happiness. Because your view is insane. Many paths to what you call God. Atheism itself is a kind of fantasy world. And the God of the universe wants to live in you. God hates you. 11 people have been confirmed dead. Let's stop the killing and choose peace. Blow them all away in the name of the Lord. That was the only form of Christianity I knew existed, and I knew I didn't like it. Uh, we are in the sermon series, Mixed Signals. How do we hold on to the things that we claim to be true in a world full of competing voices, in a world full of voices that say, but our truth is the right truth as well. And then other people who are saying, but my truth is the right truth. What do we do in the midst of that kind of mess, in the midst of those mixed signals? I love what our bulletin said a couple weeks ago on the idea of, of multiple voices. It says we can be tempted to make our voice heard by shouting the loudest. Or we can stay quiet and turn a blind eye to those who think differently. Our temptation is to do one of either two things, right? To say, we have the right answer. I somehow have come to this enlightened place of knowing all the answers. And I'm going to shout it the loudest to be the best and to be number one and to lord it over all of you poor souls who don't know the truth yet. Or we just stay super passive and super quiet and we don't engage at all. But we, what we want to figure out as a church... As a family, is how do we live in the balance? There are lots of mixed signals. There are lots of voices. And how do we enter into that humbly and with grace and still believing that this person of Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? So we're going to look at that together this morning. We've titled this sermon, I Can Relate. And I love this title because I think this is one of the things that I really want us to focus on this morning is relating, right? It's not so much that we go about shouting the loudest to try to be number one in the race of perfect dogmas and doctrines, which are just fancy words for opinions and beliefs about your religion. It's not about that, nor is it about ignoring other worldviews and not participating at all. But rather, my friends, as we go through the different stories and scriptures this morning, I think one of the things that we're going to see is that it actually is about relating. And that Jesus invites us to relate with people of different worldviews for the sake of his universal kingdom love. So I can relate. And uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through a series of different stories. There's about four stories altogether. Uh, two from scripture, two from outside sources. And the first story that I want to look at comes from a dude in New York City. His name is Brandon, and he's actually the founder of an incredible blog called Humans of New York. Is anybody familiar with that? It's insane, right? I love, love that blog. And, and as a photographer myself, I think I appreciate it even more. But Humans of New York is just this really um, simple idea. Brandon, again, the founder of the blog, decided, I want to go to New York City and simply take pictures of the vast, beautiful array of humanity. I want to take pictures of the inhabitants of New York and share little snippets of their story. So literally all the blog is is a collection of portraits and tiny snippets of the people's stories. And I don't think that there's any city more concentrated in differing worldviews than perhaps that of New York City. So it's a really cool way to see the beauty of humanity and the diversity of beliefs. And so our first story comes from Humans of New York, and it looks a little something like this. She speaks more languages than anyone in the family. 
because she plays with all the children in the street. I know, right? I love that. There's this beautiful, perfect little girl, and she knows more languages than anyone in her family because she plays with all the children in the street. This little girl has figured out something that we as adults feel miserably to figure out. This little girl knows the art and the beauty of relating. She doesn't go into the streets of New York City and ask somebody, tell me, what are your religious beliefs? Oh, that doesn't jive with me. I can't play with you. Wait a minute. What about yours? What are your religious beliefs? That's way different than mine. I'm never playing with you. You. Oh, yeah, I can play with you. No way, dude. This little girl goes into the streets and she says, I'm going to play with anybody and everybody. And I'm going to engage in relationships with them. It's about relating. And she's figured out something that I want to figure out. So that's story number one. Story number two takes us to a city called Athens in first century. And I think maybe there's in some way a similarity between New York City and Athens in the sense that New York City is this buzzing city, right? I mean, you go there to be somebody. You go there to be discovered. You go there to share whatever artistic talents you might have. It's kind of the place where you want to go if you have a certain talent or something to share. A place where you go to be discovered or a place to consume different ideas and different things. So too, it was with first century Athens. And the story that we're going to look at comes from Acts 17. And we're going to read it and then we're going to unpack it together as a community to figure out what are some examples What are some ways that we can engage in a world with competing voices? So as always, as I always love to say whenever I preach, I love doing things in community, which means I totally welcome the amens. I totally welcome the hallelujahs. If you guys want to read aloud when the text is on the screen, go ahead and read aloud. It's cool. We're family. We can do it all together. All right? So let's get started. We're going to look at Acts 17. And it reads as this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Some took him and brought him in to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us. So we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, amen, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath in all things. Paul continues in his discussion with the Athenians, and it ends with this. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. 
At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers. Amen. Yeah. Yes. Some of them joined him and became believers. Now, to get, um, to get as much as we possibly can out of any story, right, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or, or a story from scripture, I think we need to unpack the context in which it was written, right? And so what I want us to do together is maybe unpack just a little bit of Paul's context so we know that he's in Athens in its first century. In Athens was the city of all cities. Someday I would love to go there. Uh, Athens just had this remarkable place. It really was the scene for philosophical debate. Okay, so that's where Paul is at. He's at this place where it's like, you know what happens here? People actually engage in philosophical dialogue. That always is taking place. I've been studying theology for about eight years now. Um, and, and when you study theology, you inevitably then study philosophy. And so I'm particularly drawn to this story because they're talking about the Epicureans and the Stoics and Socrates. And I'm like, these are the dudes I've been reading about for eight years. I don't understand nearly 90% of the things that they're saying, but I've been reading about them and it's super rad. And this is the setting, like those big wigs, the Greek philosophers that we, we might not know much about them, but we at least are aware of them. They do their thing here in Athens where Paul is. And not just in Athens, but in the marketplace, the buzzing marketplace, where people come, so the story tells us, to do nothing but hear new ideas. It's the place to go to share your philosophical ideas and to hear something new. And what we also know is that uh, some of these philosophers have the belief that, that there is no God, right? And that it, maybe if there even is a God, he surely doesn't care about the plight of humanity, And so these are the different sort of beliefs that are going on in the marketplace. People worshiping all these different idols, even idols that is claimed to an unknown God. So how do we relate in situations like this? How do we engage uh, in in places and with people with differing worldviews? And I think this story about Paul in Athens can give us a few prominent take-home points. So let's unpack it a little bit more. The first thing that I want us to notice is the very first verse that we read. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed. He was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Point number one. Paul did not look at the city. Paul did not look at the marketplace and think to himself, I need to quickly prepare a perfectly systemized structure of doctrines and dogmas so I can march into this marketplace and tell everybody how wrong they are. I need to figure out a way to make my voice the loudest so that I can win this competition of differing worldviews. No. Mm -mm. Not at all. Paul looked around the marketplace. He was distressed. If you were to open up your dictionary to find out the definition of distress, you would read this, that it's suffering from anxiety or sorrow or pain. Paul's looking around this city, and he's taking careful observations of the city, and his heart is distressed, and he's concerned. Synonyms can also be afflicted or worried so point number one of how, to, how do we do this thing of, of relating to people and engaging in conversation and holding on to truth with competing worldviews. First off, Paul enters the marketplace because his heart was concerned. It's out of compassion and worry that he enters into the marketplace. So that's point number one of how do we relate to people of differing worldviews. 
It's always out of compassion. It's always out of love, right? It's not about being right. It's not about being the loudest, but it's about owning the fact that the love and the grace of Jesus Christ has so radically transformed my life that maybe I just want to share that. Maybe I want other people to know the love and the transforming love of Jesus Christ, not necessarily my particular dogmas, but I want my heart to be concerned for those people who are longing for something. Amen. So if we continue on in the story, we can notice a few more things. Paul enters the marketplace, and he said, and, and the story tells us that he was observing things. So Paul comes from a different context than the Athenians, right? So he goes there, and he observes their surroundings. He observes their way of life, and he acknowledges it. And he recognizes, I'm among people with different worldviews. I'm among people who think differently than me. And out of my heart of concern, I'm going to enter and join them where they're at on their terms, in their language. And so we see that Paul then starts engaging in dialogue with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And what's the first thing that he does? He compliments them. He compliments them. Now, some scholars say that this was probably a little bit tongue-in-cheek, that he was being sarcastic or making fun of them a little, like, oh, I see all your millions of idols, how so religious you are. But other scholars say, like, no way, dude. It's not that at all. Because Paul's heart was concerned. And Paul so desperately wanted to find a point of connection that he says, I actually see your attempts. I see the ways in which you are very religious. Basically saying, I see the intention of your heart. So another take-home point is that Paul finds a point of connection. Paul compliments them and says, I see how very religious you are. And even more, it goes on to say, for as I went through the city and looked carefully... Looked carefully at the objects of your worship. Paul took notice of their objects of worship. Paul wanted to get to know their worship. Paul did not come in and say, I have my own form of worship. I have my own God. I have my own dogma. I have my own truth. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to lord it over you. No way, dude. Rather, Paul comes in and he submits to the ways of the Athenians. And he says, I see what you're doing. And I want to get to know the things that you try to worship. And he joins them there. And also, what Paul does is he uses the language of the Athenians. Usually when we read through scripture, we we will find examples of Paul using scripture, right? When he's teaching or when he's engaging in dialogue. But here, he observes his context. He gets to know the people. And he pays careful attention to each of the idols. And Paul then uses the inscriptions on their very own idols to communicate with them. And he says, these are what your things say. And one of your idols says to an unknown God. And Paul wants to highlight that. Because to have an idol is, I think, this manifestation of the idea that we are longing for something. We need something to fill us because we're not satisfied. And so I'm going to create all these altars and all these idols in these ways of of satisfying my innermost longing. And Paul points up to that. He says, I see the longings of your heart. And I see how very religious you are as an attempt to fill that deep longing. And you know what? I think I might know what that longing is. But I'm going to use your language so that we together can engage in this dialogue. And that maybe we together can come to know maybe this unknown God that you're worshiping. And so Paul carries on. And he says, I see. And I know that you're craving for something because you have an idol to an unknown God. Let me tell you who that is. 
All right, indeed. But the thing about it is Paul actually never uses the name Jesus when he's going on to say, I might know who that person is that you're trying to worship. He never uses the language of Jesus. Rather, he uses their own language. It's this wildly intellectual way of going about and engaging in dialogue with people of different worldviews. Paul simply highlights their longing and engages in their dialogue and their ways of understanding things to help bring light to the love of Jesus Christ. And I think that is wildly brilliant. And in so doing, at the end, we see that after all of this, after highlighting the longings of the Athenians' hearts, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And others joined him and became believers. So the reality is, is Paul did not come in with an agenda. Paul did not come in wanting to win the competition of, of various voices. Paul came in understanding the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And that it is only Jesus Christ's mission that can change people's hearts. He was moved from concern. He was moved out of a heart of distress. And he was moved because he knew, like every human being has, a longing and Paul, he himself, his life was radically transformed on the road to Damascus, right? And he wanted to share that good news. He wanted to share that truth with the people. And he allowed people to receive it or to reject it. It's not our job to coerce others to believe that which we believe. He simply shared. He simply shared the things that the Athenians were longing for. And therefore gave the freedom to let some scoff if they wanted to scoff. It's not our job to force somebody to believe that which we think they need to believe. We need to give them the freedom to scoff if they want to scoff. And that's what Paul did. And we also need to give space and freedom for people to ask further questions. Because others were saying, I'm hearing you. I need more. And that's all. Because this is God's mission. And God's mission will inspire people to ask questions when God chooses and when people want to choose that. And for, Yeah, dude, go for it. Go for it. And finally, we read that some followed him and became believers. Because why? Again, it's God's mission. This wasn't Paul's mission. Paul was just participating in the mission that's already going, that Jesus Christ started. And some became believers. Amen. So that's another story. Let's look back to another story where we find disciples entering into places of different worldviews. And this story comes from Luke chapter 10. It also holds for us a significant amount of take-home points on how to live in a world of mixed signals. And the story reads as this. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest upon that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. For the laborer deserves to be paid. And do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat whatever is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. I adore this story. I think this story is a unique portrayal of the art of hospitality. 
Yes? And so when we go through the story, and just as we did with Acts 17, let's unpack it just a little bit. First, we see that this is a story about mission. I think as the entire story of God is, right? And understanding that this is God's mission because Jesus is the one who sends out his disciples. And Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful. This thing that I started at creation and everything that we've been doing since then, the harvest is plentiful. It is ready. It is ripe. Send out. Go out, therefore. And, so, and then when it reads that, see, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves, what we find in that is that Jesus is sending his disciples into hostile territory. Scholars say that Jesus was more than likely sending him into the Samaritan villages. And the Samaritans and Jews, they don't really jive together. It's not just that they have different worldviews, but that's a hostile relationship. And I believe Jesus is saying, like, I have come to love all people. I have come so that I can pour out my covenant of love for all people groups, even the ones who you have hostile relationships with them. And so therefore, I'm going to send you to them because my love is that big and my mission is that big and my kingdom is that big. So I want you to go into these hostile territories and share my love. And how does Jesus send out the disciples? Carry no purse. Carry no bag. And you are to go into these hostile territories, relying and receiving the hospitality of the Samaritans. Now, usually we understand hospitality to be that which we give to others, right? And I think there's various uh, passages in scriptures that instruct us to do so, like to be hospitable, um, welcoming and opening and giving of your gifts. But in this story, we find the reverse, that Jesus sends his disciples out completely vulnerable. They're not to take anything with them. And he sends them out to receive the hospitality of the people who think differently than them. Imagine that. Put that into our contemporary context. Being sent out into a, a, a hostile territory. Perhaps we're going to be sent out to, to, to ISIS. And we are to then to rely on their hospitality to receive us. That is a wild idea. That is a wild and crazy idea. And Jesus says, don't you worry, because it's not just you that I'm going to provide for, but it's also those people who will open up their homes to you. I'm providing for them, because why? This is my mission, and I've got a plan. And so they're just be sent out completely vulnerable and rely on the hospitality of the Samaritans. And further instructions are given in this story that I think we can use in our world of mixed signals. It says that whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house and remain in the same house, Jesus tells his disciples. Now, I tend to be a little bit of a vagabond. Every two years or so, I get an itch. I'm like, I got to peace out. I got to go somewhere new. I need a new adventure. Um, But the longer I stay here at this church, the more I fall in love with you guys. So I'm not going anywhere. But there's this inner temptation where it's like, I want to go. I want to bounce from house to house and figure out a new adventure and try out something new. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, I want you to stay I want you to stay in that same house. Why? To build relationships. Amen. This is Jesus' first instructions on how to engage with people of different worldviews. This is Jesus' first instruction on how to go and, and live out his mission. It's, you know what? It's about relationships. You stay with those people. You build relationships with them, and you live as they live. You don't get to come in there lording over your ideas and your opinions over them. Rather, you submit to their hospitality, and you stay there. What is even more is that Jesus says, eat and drink whatever they provide. Eat and drink whatever they provide. Clearly, they're going to have different customs and different traditions than the Jews, the Samaritans, well, but Jesus is saying, it's okay. I'm bigger than customs. 
I'm bigger than traditions, and I want you to receive whatever they give to you. So in part, I think Jesus is saying, I want you to take on their customs. Get to know their context. Get to know the ways in which they do things. Don't scoff at it. Don't mock it. Don't try to think that your way is better. Rather, receive it. Eat and drink whatever they give to you. Continue building that relationship. Continue building that relationship. And then, and only then, after you engage in relationships and build relationships and humbly submit to their hospitality and maybe take on their customs of eating and drinking, and then after curing the sick of whoever is there, then may you proclaim, then may you use your words, then may you preach that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Think about that, my friends. How much more receptive would we be to the kingdom of God if we would but start with relationships? Yeah. If we would start with relationships and if we would enter into God's mission humbly and relying that Jesus is the one who's going to make this whole thing work. I don't have a purse to carry. I don't have a bag to carry. I don't have sandals for my feet. But I have the transforming love of Jesus Christ that is sending me forth and that's what I need to rely on. I also need to rely that Jesus is also going to transform the hearts of those who will extend any sort of hospitality to me. And trust like, you know what? Maybe we need to be more open to one another. Maybe I need to practice somehow taking on the customs and traditions and the ideas of people who are different than me and then share with them my own. It's this mutual exchange. Give a little, take a little, share a little. We need to be open. Uh, There's this dude uh, named uh, Martin Buber, and he has this book called I Am Now, and it's all about dialogue. What is the best and, and most authentic way to dialogue? And basically, the overall contention is that we need to enter into it with an openness, Right? Because can a true dialogue ever take place if you enter into a relationship or enter into a dialogue saying, like, my way is the right way. I have closed fists of beliefs. They're right. And I'm not going to listen to yours. I'm going to pretend to listen, but I already have my whole fistful of beliefs. And then I'm going to spout them after you. Is that authentic dialogue? I don't think so. Rather, we need to be open to learning something from people who think differently than us. And I think that's an example of what we see here in Luke chapter 10. Eat and drink whatever they give to you. And then tell them, my kingdom has come. And do you want it? Do you want to receive it? I love this story so much. I love how I fail miserably to replicate this story. Um, But I'm so incredibly grateful that Jesus has come to share in relationship. I'm so incredibly grateful that the God that we serve is a triune God and therefore fundamentally a God of relationship. And he extends that relationship to us. Because if it were about proclaiming perfectly oiled dogmas and beliefs and having an exact structure of how to say things in a world full of mixed signals. You guys, I would feel miserably at that. I do not articulate well. I'm an internal processor. I need 14 weeks to think about something before I can tell you my beliefs. I would fail miserably if that was the mission of God. I would. I would need to be like, hold on. Uh, What do you want me to talk about? Can I go home and research it for a few weeks? Can I write you a paper? And then can we engage in dialogue? But Jesus is like, Just go into the town. Eat what they give to you. Share in fellowship with them. Use their language as Paul used their language. Understand their setting. We see that Paul observed their setting and their context, and he engaged in that. That is a much more humble way of doing things than coming in with a fist full of ideas and lording it over others. I can relate. There's another story that I would like to share with you guys as we close our time together. 
Uh, It's a story about a woman. Her name is Dawn. And she is a nurse in, at, a, at a hospital in the Chicago area. And I think what this story can do for us is help us to bring these ideas of scripture into our contemporary context of how do we live this out every single day in our context, in our present day situations. How do I relate to people who think differently than me in my job? Or when I go out into the city? Or when I'm reading the news? Anything, right? Like how can I possibly do this? I think this story about Dawn gives us a picture of how to relate with people who are different than us, how to relate to people who we've cast aside, how do we relate to people that most of society has said you actually aren't worthy of God's love. And so if you guys wouldn't mind, I would like to share a final story about relating. It reads as this. In my years in the ER, I saw Jesus daily doing his kingdom work in and through a group of his followers. It was a true expression of the church. But one day stands out beyond all others, and it left me radically changed forever. It was the day I saw Jesus face to face. Give us hearts as servants was the song we were singing as I left church service heading off for my second 12-hour shift in a row. Weekends in the ER can be absolutely brutal. I was physically and emotionally spent as I walked up to the employee entrance. The sounds of ambulances and an approaching medical helicopter were telltale signs that I would literally be hitting the ground running. Don, can you do a lockdown on room 15? Yelled out my charge nurse as I crawled up to the nurse's station. Now, when somebody asks you for a lockdown, it was usually a psychiatric or combative case. Two security guards stood outside the room, biceps flexing like bouncers, anticipating a drunken brawl. My eyes rolled as I walked past them and into the room to set up. The masked medics arrived with the man. The man she refers by his first initial N. So throughout the story, this patient, his name is N. Uh, They arrived with N, strapped and restrained to their cart. The hallway cleared with heads turned away in disgust at the smell surrounding them. They entered the room, and I could see N, with his feet hung over the edge of the cart, covered with plastic bags tightly taped around the ankles. My ER doctor quickly examined N while we settled him in. The medics rattled off their findings in the background, with N mumbling in harmony right along with them. The smell was overpowering as they uncovered his mold-encrusted feet. After tucking him in and taking his vital signs, I left the room to tend to my other ten patients in waiting. Upon returning to the nurse's station, I overheard the other nurses and techs arguing, arguing over who would have to take care of N as their patient. In addition to the usual lab work and tests, the doctor had ordered a shower for N, a shower complete with a foot scrub, with antibiotic ointment and a non-adherent wraps. The charge nurse looked in my direction. Don, will you please take N? Please, you don't even have to do the foot scrub. Just give him a sponge in the shower. I agreed and made my way to gather the supplies and waited for the security guard to open the hazmat shower. As I waited with N, the numbness of my business 
was interrupted by an overwhelming sadness. I watched N, restless and mumbling incoherently to himself through his scruff of a beard and stash. His eyes were hidden behind his ratted, curly, shoulder-length mane. This poor shell of a man had no one to love him. I wondered about his past. What happened to him to bring him to this hopeless place? No one in the ER that day really looked at him, and no one wanted to touch him. They wanted to ignore him and ignore his broken life. But as much as I tried to do that, I could not. I was drawn to him. The smirking security guards helped me walk him to the shower. But as we entered the shower room, I set out the shampoo, soaps, and towels like it was a five-star hotel. I felt in my heart that for at least ten minutes, this forgotten man would be treated as a king. I thought that for those ten minutes, he would see the love of Jesus. I set down the foot sponge, and I decided that I would do the foot scrub bath myself as soon as the shower was finished. I called the stockroom for two large basins and a chair. When N was finished in the shower, I pulled back the curtain and walked him to the throne of warm blankets and the two basins set on the floor. As I knelt at his feet, my heart broke and my stomach turned as I gently picked up his swollen, rotted feet. Most of his nails were black and curled over the tops of his toes. The skin was rough, broken, and oozing pus. Tears streamed down my face while my gloved hands tenderly sponged the brown soap over his wounded feet. The room was quiet as the once mocking security guards started to help by handing me towels. As I patted the last foot dry, I looked up, and for the first time, N's eyes looked into mine. From that moment, he was alert, aware, and weeping as he quietly said, thank you. And in that moment, I was the one seeing Jesus. He was there all along, right where he said he would be. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Matthew 25. This is a story of the gospel. This is a story of one woman whose own life was radically transformed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ that she decided to extend the grace and love of Jesus Christ to somebody who was unloved. And what happens in this story? Don chose to relate to somebody that nobody else wanted to relate to. Don decided my life was changed by grace. And maybe this person's life can be changed by grace as well. Because it's not my job to decide who gets to be touched by the grace of Jesus Christ. Rather, my only job, if we are to even have quote-unquote jobs, is to recognize that God's love is universal. It is for all people, those people who think differently than us, those people who have different traditions than us. It is universal, it's huge, and it is transforming. What I love about this story is that, right, we, we saw in the beginning that the security guards were mocking that people were turning in away in disgust because N was so foul and nobody wanted to take care of him. And like, I, I, I imagine what that was like. But Don chose, wait a minute, my life was transformed by the grace of God. 
I'm going to treat this man as a king. I am going to treat this man as a king. And that is the most wild example of sharing the love of Jesus Christ. And what happens when we humbly simply share the love of Jesus Christ rather than holding tight fists of dogmas? What happens? That entire ER room was changed. The mocking soldiers started to help Dawn by handing her towels. That is what happens when we relate and when we relate humbly with people who are different than us. I want to be like this. I want to share the love of Jesus Christ like this. I want to look at people who think differently than me. And the only thing I want to think about them is that you are radically loved by Jesus Christ and that you deserve to be treated like a king or a queen or royalty because that's who Jesus Christ says that you are. Uh, as, we, as we close, I have a few take-home points for us of how do we take these stories about relating to other people and live them out How can we um, kind of dissect this down a little bit to have something tangible to take out with us? I created a list. It's just three points. Take with them what you want. Expand them how you want. But the first point is this. Recognize your place. Recognize that you have a context. And that context influences the ways that you see other people. I'm a Midwestern girl born in Minnesota. If I go somewhere else, I'm going to have a Midwestern lens and I'm going to see things through my lens. But I want to be more like Paul who observes carefully his surroundings and says, oh, I see how you guys are doing things. I'm going to come and meet you there. I don't want to come to a different context with my Midwestern context and say, this is how you need to do things. Eat hot dish and things like that. No. Somebody feed me something else. I'm a hot dish. Uh, Recognize your place. Recognize that this is God's mission. This is not our mission. Leslie Newbegin, he's a missional theologian. I, my, my quote is somewhere really lost, so I'm, not, I'm going to butcher it. But he basically says, this mission, it's not yours. I, as a follower of Jesus, did not start this mission. Any act of furthering the mission is only by an act of God. This mission, I need to recognize my place. It is a mission of God's, not mine. It's not Woodland Hills' church mission. It's God's mission. We simply have the joy and the honor of living into it. Recognize your place. Point number two is think universally. We don't need to be scared about that word. (laughs) Universally is just all-encompassing, all-expanding. I'm pretty sure that the love of Jesus Christ was for all of creation, not just those that I think is worthy of it. The cross is for all of creation. I have come so that all might know the way, the truth, and the life. I have come so that all might be transformed by my radical love. Everybody. I don't get to decide who gets it and who doesn't. Think universally. And the third and final point is this. Covenant relationship is greater than dogma. Covenant relationship is greater than any belief I might hold, however tightly or however loosely. It's always about covenant relationship. This is the type of thing that transforms lives. This is the type of thing that people relate to. This is the type of people are thing that people long after. We want something real. And that which is real is covenant relationship with triune God. So my friends, these are the simple take-home points that I give to us today. And, 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 and in closing, I would like to pray. And as we pray, let's welcome up the prayer ministers the heartbeat of our church are our prayer ministers. It's what keeps this whole thing working together. So come, receive prayer. Yeah. If you have any prayer needs whatsoever, or if you just want to, if you have questions, if you just want to dialogue, we're here. Let's do things as a family. Um, so let's close in prayer, and then we can be, we can be sent out.
God, thank you for your mission. Thank you that your kingdom is so big that it welcomes in all who would ever receive it. Thank you that your kingdom and your mission and your love transforms lives. Thank you that you've called us into relationship with yourself and that you um, long that others would share relationship with you. Keep us in that place, God. Would you teach our hearts to relate first before debating? Would you humble us, Lord? Would you transform us more into your image? Would you unify us as your family? Would you continue praying that we would be one as you and your Father are one? Thank you for my family here and the ways in which you are creating us as a community more into your image. And together, as a family, we pray these things in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, and in the name of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends.